Good to have you with us today. If you're a guest, we'd like to say welcome home. We, join, we welcome those who are joining us on the live stream as well. Uh, I, you know, I was enjoying watching the praise team, of course, listening to the music and the lyrics and all, but just enjoying our young, young, fresh-faced praise team up here. Then they do a great job. Good to see young people up here. And uh, they keep a few of us old-timers like me and Steve Macaluso, so visitors won't think we're just a church full of kids, and we want to skew the average up a little bit, but appreciate them very much. Okay, back in 1988, there was a farmer who bought a farm in Edmore, Michigan, and come to find out the previous owner had been using this big rock as a doorstop at the barn, doorstop for the barn there. He hefted it, thought it was awful heavy for its size, thought it might be gold or gold ore, took it to Central Michigan University, come to find out it wasn't gold, but it was something unique and rare. What do you think it was? It wasn't a ruby. It was a meteorite. It was a meteorite, 22-pound meteorite worth $100,000. Nice to find a little extra value there on the farm, some hidden treasure. And, and today, now our sermon series this month is Hidden Christmas. We're going to look at some of the hidden treasures of Christmas in a passage we don't always think about when we think about the birth of Jesus because it's not about shepherds or mangers or wise men, but it's a passage from the Apostle John. And John has a gospel, but he also wrote three letters that are included in the New Testament. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So today we're doing our scripture work in 1st John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's get those verses before us. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So John here is not recounting the events of Christmas, but what he is talking about is the doctrine of Christmas. So I want to look at four aspects of the doctrine of Christmas this morning from from this passage just very basic number one that salvation is by grace salvation is by grace and we know this and we've seen this in each one of our messages this month but look at how John approaches it as he writes about the word of life and the word of eternal life as I mentioned John also has a gospel and in, in the introduction to that gospel the very first verse there he's talking about the Son of God but as the word the logos John 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's the Word that he writes went on to become flesh. And in 1 John, in his letter in verses 1 and 2, he speaks of this Word as the Word of life and as actual eternal life himself. Of course, we're talking about Jesus. And notice John doesn't say Jesus gives eternal life or offers eternal life, although that may be true, but here he says, this word is life. He himself is eternal life. Because Jesus is God made flesh. And so when we are in union with him through faith and love, we are entering into the author of what is really life for us and what is eternal life. Not because of what we do. Now sometimes you might hear people say, I've heard this, 
you know, I don't know about all this dogma about Jesus or all this doctrine. I'm not sure I buy the virgin birth or, or even the atonement or maybe the resurrection. I just believe, not dogma, but you need to live a good life. Isn't that what all religions basically teach us? Live a good life, things will turn out okay. Now, when somebody says that, I don't believe in dogma, religious dogma, just that you need to live a good life. That is a dogma. <laughs> that is a doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. And it's basically the teaching of salvation by works, by good works. And it's basically the idea, that may be bad, but I'm not so bad that I can't live a good life and be acceptable to God if there is a God, or I'm not so broken that I can't lift myself up by my bootstraps and fix myself, which is a very tenuous way to live. If somebody is approaching life that way, for one thing, most people are very uncertain that they've ever lived up to their own moral code or their own law codes. There's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to that. Or maybe a person might be filled with pride if they think they have attained that status and maybe look with disdain on others who have not or depression or self-loathing because they haven't met that standard. Christianity offers us something totally different and comes along and says, that doctrine of salvation by what you do and the good life that you live, that is totally different wrong eternal life or life is found through jesus christ it's an alternative what we do does not contribute to our salvation it's all by jesus that's grace it's a gift so in the old testament you have the prophet jonah for instance and jonah was called by god to go and preach a message of repentance and salvation to the city of nineveh the assyrians there he didn't want to do that so he charters a boat and goes in the opposite direction God causes the storm to come up on the sea. When Jonah confesses to the sailors that he's the cause of the storm, the sailors throw him overboard, and Jonah begins to sink. And he is drowning. He's being judged by drowning in that sea. Here's the way he puts it, Jonah 2.7. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you. Jonah 2.6, God snatched me from the jaws of death. So he's dying, there's no question. How did God snatch Jonah from the jaws of death? Well, you know the answer to that if you've never even, never even read the Bible. We know this story, Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the great fish. Jonah 1.17, the Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah 2.10, then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Now, what did Jonah do to contribute to his salvation? What good works did he do to earn his salvation? None. It's the fish that did everything. I mean, Jonah repented and he cried out to God in prayer. But then it's the fish that comes along and swallows Jonah. And the, swish, the, the fish does all the work. It's the fish that swims through the waters of judgment. Jonah's just in the belly along for the ride. And then he gets spit out on the beach of life. And so, in a sense, that fish was the fish of life for Jonah. Just like we're reading about Jesus is the word of life. So the fish was the fish of life for Jonah. It's doing all the work, of course, through God. What did Jesus say? Only signs going to be given to this generation to the sign of, of Jonah. So when, when it comes to our salvation, I know you know this, just a reminder, good to remember, 
It's not based on what we do or how good a life that we're living. It's based on the fact that we believe the gospel and we repent of our sin and we call on the name of the Lord when we're baptized, like Ananias, call on the name of the Lord and we're baptized. What are we baptized into or who? We're baptized into Christ. And then Christ sort of swims us through the waters of judgment or the fires of judgment and spits us out on the other side and eternal life. And it's Jesus who does all the work through his death, his atoning, which means substitutionary death, and his righteousness imputed to us. And we're kind of along for the ride in that sense. That's just an alternative way of looking how salvation works. Salvation's by grace. Number two, thinking about the doctrine of Christmas. Salvation is by grace because Christmas is true. Christmas really happened. Again, in verse 1, John says, We saw him with our eyes, we heard him with our ears, and we touched him with our hands. Now, if we're saved just by living a, a good life, then whether or not Christmas is true or the Gospels are true doesn't really matter. They're just stories to inspire us to live a good life, to live to be like Jesus, to live morally. But if we're saved by grace, by the gift of God, through the atoning death of Jesus and his resurrection, then it absolutely matters. It makes all the difference in the world whether these things actually happened and whether they are true. And it's John who's writing here and saying, look, we came, we saw, we heard, we touched. What we're telling you actually happened. It's true. Robert Yarbrough is a New Testament scholar. He says that the verbs here in this verse correspond to the varieties of witness attestation and ancient jurisprudence. And so when John writes, quote, we have seen it and testified to it, and then he speaks of hearing, seeing, and touching, he is not making conversation, but virtually swearing a deposition. This is court language. John is saying, this is not just a set of nice stories. Many others and I were eyewitnesses. We testify to it. We really saw him. He really lived. He really died, and he really rose from the dead. Now, you know that there are folks known as Holocaust deniers, and we know that. There's Holocaust deniers. All of conspiracy, movies are fake, the pictures are fake, and it's possible to fake videos and, and pictures. We know that. Uh, the stories are exaggerated. They're Holocaust deniers. Well, how do you know? Who's to say? Well, all testimony, I mean, all, all history is the testimony of reliable witnesses with corroborating evidence. That's what history is. Now, I read an article recently about a, a fellow named Bruno Ritter. Bruno Ritter was a Holocaust survivor. He was in Auschwitz as a teenager. He was tattooed by his captors with the number 85229. That was his, number, his ID number. You know, they did that in Auschwitz for some of the prisoners. They would tattoo an ID number on the, the Jewish captives there. He testified in the war crimes trial against Joseph, Joseph Schwamberger, a Nazi officer who Ritter personally witnessed murdering hundreds of Jews, including members of his own family. The lawyers challenged him, Ritter, because he could not control, the, he could not remember, rather, the exact dates of his arrests and transports. 50 years earlier. So Ritter told them this. He said, if you want dates, look up my tattoo number in the Nazi records. You'll get all the dates you need. I'm here because I owe this to my family. I read where this man denies everything. He says he can't remember. How can he not remember? I can't forget. 
So pretty reliable witness, testimony, corroborating evidence in the form of a tattoo. And when I read that, I thought of a statement made by the Apostle Paul in Galatians. And he's writing there, and the people were doubting his apostolic authority and his testimony. He says, don't let, don't let these folks cause me trouble. He says, I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Christ. Now, I know we're mostly believers here, but I want to reaffirm this for us this morning. Now, who's to say? Well, we've got witnesses like our apostle John right here and a, a, dozen, a dozen other apostles and, other, and hundreds of eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, but these apostles in the apostolic circle who not only gave their oral testimony but wrote that testimony down. And it has been providentially preserved for us for 2,000 years. And they said, this is what we heard. We saw it. We're giving our testimony. And they didn't get a lot of Twitter followers. They didn't get a lot of success. They didn't make a lot of money. They didn't get a lot of book deals because of their testimony. In fact, what they got was scars. They got beatings, scourgings, imprisonments, hardships for their trouble. Now, if it's not true, that doesn't make any sense. But if it is true, it makes all the sense in the world. And the corroborating evidence, we've got a church that's been here for 2,000 years. We have mass conversions of Jews in the first century. Why did they convert to Christianity? Why did they transition from Saturday to Sunday as their special day of worship? Well, because something happened on Sunday. That would be the resurrections. Reliable testimony and corroborating evidence. So salvation is by grace because... Christmas is real. It really happened. And thirdly, therefore, fellowship with God is possible. Fellowship with God is possible, verses 3 and 4. He continues, We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, as where those first two verses sound kind of like a deposition, here we get to the goal. What's the goal of our salvation? Our sins are forgiven. That is a, the definition of salvation is to be forgiven. But what's the goal? Then what happens? So we're forgiven. Now what? Now we enter into fellowship with God. This was his goal. The word here for fellowship, the original language is koinonia. It means a deep communion with the Lord. In fact, we're going to have communion in just a few minutes. That's where we get the word communion. It's koinonia. It's speaking of a fellowship with God that he's called us into. Only Christianity offers this of the world religions. It's unique in that respect. Eastern religions do not have a personal God with whom to have a fellowship, a relationship. They're Eastern, pantheistic, monistic religion. Like pantheistic means God is everything. Monistic means one, means there's one world soul. So I'm God, you're God, the chair is God, and the tree is God, and the, the whole purpose is to merge with the world soul, lose our identity, our personality, which happens at death. So this is Star Wars. Right? This is Star Wars philosophy. Obi-Wan Kenobi explains this very well when he's talking to Luke Skywalker about the Force. Don't believe me? Got to show you the clip, right? Okay, so a 22-second clip. Obi-Wan's going to take it for us, and then we'll come back, talk a little bit more.
we probably do. The force is a Hindu concept in Star Wars. It's an impersonal force that we all blend into. It's, it's in us. It's, it's that concept of God. Other religions may have a personal God, but not one who comes close to us, like the God of Christianity, who was incarnate, became flesh, in part, part of the goal here is so that we could enter into a deep relationship and communion with the Lord. When Jesus comes, God in the flesh, we see all these great attributes of God. We know he's omniscient. We know he's omnipresent. We know he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We know he's the creator. We know he's just and righteous and merciful and gracious. We see those in the Old Testament, but we see it in the flesh in the incarnation. In Jesus as he walks here on this earth and lives as God. Charles Wesley's hymn, Veiled in Flesh the Godhead See. Not veiled in flesh the Godhead hidden, but the Godhead see. First, uh, rather, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. We beheld his glory, which means character. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we We'll do what it takes to enter into a deep communion and fellowship with the Lord. When we read the Word, this is part of the goal of our devotion, our reading, and our prayer is to walk with the Lord. By the way, so this is the last sermon of 2019 when next we gather together on Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be five days into 2020, a new year. No better time to start reading the one-year Bible than on January 1st. And we'll start off in Genesis 1-1 and Matthew 1-1. And we, will, and we, I will, and hopefully many of us will. I know you're all making New Year's resolutions. I know you love to do that. Maybe not the gym membership, but make, I encourage this one. Unless you have your own thing you're already doing, but read the one-year Bible. When we do, we will spend the next four months walking with Jesus in the Gospels. Four months. And, I mean, I know you don't have to wait to do that. But this is what we do. So we read these Gospels, and we're walking with Jesus, and we're at his feet, and we're listening to him teach, and we're watching his miracles, and we put ourselves in those stories. And I know they're historical accounts, but we put ourselves in those stories. Where are we? Who are we? What do I learn about Jesus that I can love about him, that I can love about God? What is he saying to me? Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to me through these words. Daniel Steele is a British Methodist minister, 18th century. He wrote this about a season in his life. He wrote, quote, almost every week and sometimes almost every day, the pressure of God's great love comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make my whole being, soul and body groan beneath the strain of the almost unsupportable plethora of joy. And yet amid this fullness, there's a hunger for me. He has unlocked every apartment of my being and filled and flooded them all with the light of his radiant presence. The spot before untouched has been reached and all its flintiness has melted in the presence of Jesus, the one altogether lovely, end quote. This was not his ordinary experience. This was a season in his life of a special closeness with God. I doubt this is any Christian's ordinary daily experience. It's certainly not mine, but I quote it to show possible what's possible the intimate communion with god that we're shooting for do we know do we know anything of this in our prayers in our devotions in our word in our walk with god he's calling us through salvation to koinonia to fellowship 
with God. So that, the fourth point here, so that we can have joy. So that we can have joy. Verse 4, we're writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Christmas means joy, joy to the world. It includes happiness, but not the fizzy, passing, circumstantial kind of happiness that comes just with good circumstances, more like the the happiness and joy that we read about in the Old Testament and the Psalms. The psalmist writes about the trees that aren't dependent upon the rainwater because their roots go down to an underground system of water, a river of life. Psalm 1-3, they are like trees. Let's say it for ourselves. We are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Our leaves never wither, and we prosper in all we do. Sometimes we miss the joy because we enter into it through very ordinary means. It almost seems too ordinary. But part of the mystery of Christmas is how such an extraordinary God enfolded himself into a very ordinary baby in ordinary circumstances. Hey, you know, the air show is coming back next year. I'm thinking, I don't know, it's a couple, three months into the new year. They're going to bring that Vero Beach air show back. Blue Angels, anybody here ever seen the Blue Angels? They're coming back. Aren't they amazing? I met one of the pilots of the Blue Angels over there having breakfast before one of the last shows. They're pretty impressive guys. He's in this silver flight suit, zippers from shoulders to his ankles. And then what they do in those jets is just incredible, and the aeronautics and the, the noise and the power. And I'm thinking, man, if I were sending, if I was God and I was sending my son to the earth, that's the way I would do it. Spectacle, flight suit. And then yet, but God and Jesus surprises us at every turn. No spectacle, not born in a stadium, just in a feed trough. The the ones who were present at the birth were not the A-listers of that day. It's the shepherds, no account, no, no influence. And the world finds that a little bit mysterious and even offensive sometimes. I baptize people in the later stages of life. And sometimes people question those conversions. How can somebody live their whole life hating God and then at the last minute they turn to the Lord and expect to go to heaven? That's not right. But they didn't have to live a good life. It was that old mentality, isn't it? Jesus told a parable about that. He says there was a supervisor who was going out to hire workers, day workers, work in the field, hired some in the morning, then he hired some more in the afternoon, and then he hired some just a couple of hours for quitting time. But at the end of the day, he paid them all the same amount of money and the guys have been working all day. We're complaining about the guys that only work two hours. And the soup says, hey, it's my money. I do with it what I want to. But part of the fallacy in that thinking, I mean, I understand the day workers who had to work all day. But part of the fallacy of that thinking is, is, is the analogy of walking with the Lord throughout our lives as day labor, as some kind of a job you have to grind out that you don't like. And Oh, man, I had to be a Christian my whole life. He only had to be a Christian for five minutes. Well, that's not the way Christianity works. You know, next month, we're going to start a new sermon series about the sanctity of life. We are pro-life, but we are pro-abundant life. We're pro-abundant life. And here's the thing about the Christian life. It is the abundant life. The life of fellowship with God. It's the life of joy it's the people who 
wait till the end of their lives to become Christians. And God bless them. They always hope, there's always hope. And, you know, but the people who wait to the end of their lives to be saved, it's them who, in a sense, have wasted their whole life when they could have been walking with Jesus. Because Satan takes his servants and his followers and he chews them up and mangles them in this life and he saves the worst for last. But God takes his servants and his followers and he blesses them and gives them joy and grace and peace and mercy throughout their, our lives. Now, I'm not talking about our circumstances that we don't suffer, but you know what I'm talking about. We get all this in this life, eternal life, an abundant life, and then he saves the best for last. You know, you can't be fooled by the ordinary means by which we enter into the fellowship and joy of God. After we're saved, it's very simple things. It's gathering together on a Sunday to worship. It's having the Lord's Supper, the communion. It's living a life of generosity and service to others. It's leaning on Jesus when we suffer. It's ordinary, and yet it's extraordinary at the same time. Silent night, holy night. Radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Our Father in heaven, we simply remember things that probably most of us know here this morning, but it's good to remember that we're not saved by our good life and our good works. As important as those things are, they're not unimportant, but that's not how we're saved. We're saved by your gift, your grace the atonement of Jesus on the cross, and his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that we can enter into a communion, a fellowship, a koinonia with you, and that we can have joy and abundant life right here, right now, while eternal life is waiting for us on the other side. In Jesus' name we pray.